Hey everyone, welcome to this week's show. It is the second episode of 2023, but it's also the first episode that I'm going to have a guest on the show for the year. So I was thinking about this. It's 2023. Lots of people right now are thinking about their business. They're thinking about all these different things going on around the world. Some of the fears that are being pushed into us and out to us and all that sort of thing from the media. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a world expert on company value to come onto the show. And I thought we'd geek out for an hour or so on all things exits, private equity, business valuation, M&A, all the stuff that I love. And I know it's stuff that you love too, because it's the stuff that's going to help you create a high value business that you can exit one day. So my guest today is Channing Hamlet, and he is an investment banker. Now, I often talk about what I do as a value advisor, a strategic advisor to companies, and I often go into those companies anywhere between 12 to 36 months before they are ready to go to market, to put their business on the market for sale. When that happens, that's when I partner with someone like Channing. See, an investment banker is someone who takes that business out to market, manages the whole process, negotiates the deal, and makes sure that everything happens with a high degree of professionalism and precision to get the business owner, that entrepreneur, the best outcome possible. When you look at sort of the market values and the previous transactions and try to look from the outside in at the elements of those and compare them to the company that's being valued, you can make some judgments about intangible value, brand value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Channing has been involved in the investment banking area for 25 plus years. He's done business consulting, strategy work, obviously a heap of stuff in private equity investment. And the theme today, the core theme today, is what do you need to be doing now? Let's say you want to sell your business in the next few years, three to five years out, maybe it's even longer. What do you need to be doing now in terms of driving value and saleability into your company? It's often hard to figure out how to do those things. And um, if it were easy, our clients would have already done it. But not just from my perspective, I've talked about this a lot in the solo episodes I've done of Scale Up and Scale Up Your Business when we had that back in the day. This time we are going to hear it from, shall I say the horse's mouth? Well, certainly a world expert on doing deals, doing transactions and creating significant exits for founders. So enjoy the show. Enjoy the first interview on the show for 2023 and welcome Channing Hamlet. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another episode of Scale Up. I am super excited today because I am going to riff backwards and forwards with, I'm going to say, a partner in crime. Crime is probably the wrong word. We'll get into that in a second. Um, someone who has played around the private equity space, the strategic consulting space, the business valuation space, the m a space, the exiting space which you know is one of my favorite topics on this program. So I'm delighted to have with me today, Mr. Channing Hamlet. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm really excited, really excited about it. I love the podcast. Great. Yeah. And you know what? It's always great when someone comes on the show and they've listened to a few episodes. It doesn't happen all the time, but I'm incredibly grateful for that because you understand exactly what you're about to get yourself into. Yeah. And, and I love the fact that you've combined two things I'm really excited about. You, you know, spent a lot of time about building value in businesses, which is my career. And then um, a lot of like personal performance things, which is, you know, was something my wife and I are both pretty excited about and spend a lot of time on. So very cool oh, to be here. 
great. We're going to geek out now. No, um, it, there's a there's a backstory to that, which I've shared on the podcast, but I often think that you can only scale a business to the level of your identity, right? And I say that quite often. And you have to, you have to understand how you're building yourself, right? The different experiences you have mm-hmm. to be able to set bigger goals, to achieve bigger things. So that's where the, I suppose, the join up is of those two things from my perspective. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. Excellent. Well, let's let's kick off. Uh, we are going to talk today a lot about building value in a business, why that's important. One of the things I, I definitely want to go a little bit deeper on today, Channing, is valuation and and not from an, an institutional perspective, but how we look at real value in a company. So we'll get into that. But before we do, um, let's uh, just hear your story. How did you get into this space? Um, you know, what's driven you to do that? And, and where did you come from? That sort of thing, please. Yeah, I um, I think I fell into it at some level. I you know I I grew up with uh, parents that were both in in business, and so kind of grew up in and around business. So I always knew I wanted to do something that had like a, a business tilt to it. But I went to engineering school for college and um, learned about this like really cool field called strategic consulting, and I, I got a job got a job there at uh, Mars and Company. Oh, cool. Okay. And, and we we worked. Our clients were sort of like Fortune fifty clients and um, household names. And most of the projects we did were either at the CEO or board level. So it was kind of high level strategy work. I did that for two years. Uh, My wife and I uh, got married and she got into grad school in Philadelphia. So I was forced to move. And um, I I wanted to get into private equity and figured out that I needed to kind of get into investment banking. As a as a stepping stone to learn how to do transactions, and so let me let me enough. jump in on that because I tend to I tend to interrupt people in in the way that Australians can, you know, with with a bit of charm yeah, and humor. Why private equity? What was the attraction from strategic consulting to private equity? Uh, I just think it looked really interesting to sort of invest in the idea of investing in and helping helping businesses grow and build value was just something that was always you know, really interesting to me. And, it wasn't the, it wasn't um, the money. It wasn't the money. It wasn't the idea. And it was, pro- you know, you could, you could do well financially as yeah. well. Um, and I, I wound up interviewing in Philadelphia at a number of private equity firms. And I, I had these like, great experiences like five times in a row where people like cut me off 20 minutes into the interview. And they're like, Hey, you seem like a nice kid, but you don't know anything about doing a transaction. Why don't you go work in investment banking for a couple of years? And, you know, after like five or six people told me that I was like, oh, maybe I should look at investment banking. Um, so I got in, I got involved with like uh, Leg Mason and I worked with a group of uh, managing directors that had a really nice kind of lower middle market sell side practice. Yeah. And the second transaction I worked on was a family business and they um, it was it's a great story. They were founded in the wake of the Great Depression. The second generation of the family was the first in their family to go to college. And they, you know, they oh, grew wow. up working in the business. They graduated from college and they, they turned it into an incredible company that was a leader in their niche. They were doing, you know, over a hundred million in revenue and just absolutely killing it. And then the transition to the third generation took place and um, it didn't go well. And over a period of about 10 years, the company went from having a net cash position of 20 million to a net debt position of 
20 million. So they flushed wow. $40 million. Um, Give us a time check on this, just a just broad time check, you know, until I've, uh, so when you got involved was when, and, and when was so, obviously. So, so we got involved. Uh, I remember it quite well. It was uh, Friday after this is investment banking. When you're an analyst it was Friday afternoon at like 6 PM, I was walking, uh, I called my wife. I was walking out the door to go have, go home and have dinner with her. And uh, as I'm, uh, and our office had um, a managing director sat at each end of the hallway and then all the cubicles for the analysts were in the middle. So we, if you were going to leave early while they were still there, you had to like try to get past one side or the other. And I picked the wrong direction. <laughs> and at 6 p.m. I got called into my uh, boss's office and this uh, this family called him in a complete panic. The bank had decided to foreclose on the loan because the business was out of covenant. And uh, the whole situation was like a complete mess and a fire drill. So instead of going home to have dinner with my wife on Friday night, I you know, stayed at the office till you know, two or three in the morning to prepare for a meeting on Saturday with the family to come up with a plan to sort of help them sell the business so they could pay off the bank loan, et cetera. Um, so we, we jump into this. It was a great brand that had fallen on hard times. And we wound up, long story short, it was a very complex transaction. We wound up closing it. And it went through all of the typical deal issues, accounting problems, environmental, legal, tax, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then really complex family dynamics. Mm -hmm. And this was back in the time when you would go to the law firm and sit in the conference room and negotiate. And I, when we when we finally had the last negotiation session and signed the contract, the patriarch of the family pulled me aside and and he's like, "Hey, Channing, you, you know, you, you really appreciate all your hard work on this. Um, you changed the outcome of owning this business for our family, and we'll be forever grateful to you," or something like that. And I'm pretty sure he said that to everybody or whatever, but. I was like immediately hooked. I had gone from working for, <laughs> I'd gone from working for like fortune 50 companies where um, you're working to make money for some nameless, faceless shareholder or whatever to like actually using my skills and talents to impact the life of the, the livelihood of a family and entrepreneur. And it was like, I, I love doing this. I love helping people. And so that was something that really got me hooked on the whole investment banking. So give me the, again, just, just give me the year in. this was again. Oh, this was probably 1995, 1996. Right. Okay. Cause I mean, right now we're in a, in a, in an interesting point, yeah. right. In terms of the amount of transition that's happening because of obviously people retiring, you hear a lot of different statistics around that different numbers. I've heard figures as high as $10 trillion wealth transfer and all this sort of stuff. But yep. I totally agree with you that, you know, where, where I think the most fulfillment comes from, right. And you can make money from it, of course, because you're, you're solving a big problem here is in these family owned businesses that are, you know, potentially in the sort of eight figure range, right. So they've, they've got some mm -hmm. value. I mean, your, the situation you just described, obviously I want to ask about some valuation in a second, but they've got some value, but they may not know how to transfer that value. Right. And that, that to me is a travesty because you know, those, I, I was with a, working with a business recently that was doing around about 22 million ish, um, top line profitable at about 25% margin. So not big business, but couldn't sell it because, you know, there was so many things built in it. In other words, uh, there was over-reliance on the owner. There was, 
uh, too few customers or over-reliance on revenue to a few customers, another way of saying that. And the cog in the wheel was the owner as well with those relationships. So yep. as soon as the business is sold, he goes, what are you buying? So, so just to go back a step, when that business was, was in so much debt, how do you put a value on it when a business is in that position? So that was, um, that's, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting topic. And our, our firm has a, a, a valuation practice where we do like formal appraisal work. And then we yeah. have an investment banking practice where we do transactions and, and they're pretty different worlds, you know, in the valuation practice there, it's, it's a little bit more, uh, theoretical, you know, and there's a whole series of different valuation techniques you can, you can apply to come up with a value. In the investment banking practice, it's really, you know, let the market determine the value. And so in this particular so you, case- So you, you always take it out in some form of closed auction or auction process as, yeah. part, of the, as part of the thesis that you work to there. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the, it, it, it's probably a longer answer than you want, but in the investment banking process, you know, typically we have a, a family or an entrepreneur or a close group of shareholders that have worked for a long time to build up their business. And so part of what they want to do is sell their company. And part of what they want to do is know that they're making a really good decision. Yes. And so by, by running a market process where you get feedback from the market on what the market is actually willing to pay, um, that puts them in a place where they can make a decision because they, they know the market value of their business. Um, it's not like they can wait a year and sell it for more. I mean, they know that we've gone to all the right buyers, we've run the process, we've gotten the best offer they can get for their business. Um, so it puts them in a place where they know the value from real buyers that have a checkbook. And it puts them in a place where they can make a good decision because there's not another offer at you know, some point down the road. And so that's really the market process. And so in the situation we talked about, you know, coming up with a value of this company that had an amazing brand, uh, declining revenue, and you know, basically wasn't making money. Um, that's really tricky to value that type of a company because it's you know valuation when you do it discounted cash flow or market comparables or whatever. It's really a lot based on what you believe is going to happen about the future. And so, as a valuation analyst, like you know, sitting in my office with spreadsheets, um, I could probably come up with a pretty wide range of supportable and defendable values because it's based on you know, my future assumptions or management's future assumptions. Um, but in, in this particular case, because this company had, you know, such a reputation and a nationally known brand and, you know, so many different intangible values that weren't showing up in the financials, we went out to like eight to 10 strategic buyers that would be kind of natural strategic fits for their product portfolio. And, you know, if I remember correctly, we got offers from, three or four and two were really interested. So we were able to get two companies to really bid aggressively against each other and probably got a valuation of the business that was higher than sort of what the current financials, um, what the current financials justified because of the, the brand value and the strategic value to one or one or the other of these buyers. And so that's, um, so no, that's, that's how a, we're able to create a, a really a good, good outcome for the family. No, it's, it's, I don't mind the detailed answers, by the way, because I think, again, uh, I'm sort of curating this for people listening. <laughs> okay, so, so let's just unpack that a little bit because I think it's an important thing. So, so when you look at the value of a company, and we can use this as an example or other, or other ones as well, and we're looking at the intangible value, 
right? So intangible assets is sometimes called goodwill, right? Or whatever you want to play with that versus the financial value. How do you, what percentage, and this might be a difficult question to answer, what percentage of weighting do you put? Or does it, does it depend on, as you said, where the finances are first before you start to look at that goodwill component? You know, it's, it's a, it's a really tricky, it's a really tricky question because it's, it's so, um, situation specific and, you know, business to business, uh, business to business specific, but, you know, doing the formal, doing the formal homework on valuation is super helpful. Um, and you know, you can, you can do the discounted cash flow valuation. Um, you can look at how the public market very values companies in that space. And then, um, there's a lot of databases that, you can look at, and we have access to where you can look at private transactions and see kind of what the revenues of multiple or EBITDA are and kind of come up with some ranges of likely value. And then um, that that's sort of the, the mathematical work that we do. And then there's a really big subjective element. When you look at, when, when you look at sort of the market values and the, the, previous transactions and try to like look from the outside in at the elements of those and compare them to the company that's being valued. Um, you can make some judgments about intangible value, brand value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and from a theoretical valuation framework, come up with a value. But um, in the real world, you, you know, I think a lot of business owners um, don't fully appreciate the value of an investment banker and in running a formal process. Um, in the real world, if you, if you do it right, you can go and tell the story about why a company is valuable to a particular buyer um, rather than like, hey, my company makes widgets. It's like, hey, my company makes widgets. Here's how you can make much more money than I do with it. And this is why it's really valuable to you. You can oftentimes get a strategic buyer or a private equity firm or somebody to pay more than the financial value is worth because of because you can position the company correctly with the, with the intangibles. And, um, that's really kind of the, the trick. And, you know, we like to think we're really smart about the value of a company, but when we take a company to market, we're often surprised at the, you know, ultimate result because it's above what we thought. Well, the most that I've ever been involved in in a transaction in my private equity world, and it was a big number. So when I give you the multiple in a second, it's, it's not like a tiny multiple with a big mm -hmm. number. It was a big, it was a 36 times EBITDA and we thought the company was going to go for probably somewhere between 15 to 20. That was our expectation. But the, um, the exit happened because there was a bidding war between three private equity firms towards before it got into the exclusivity piece. And the, um, the guys that finally made the, the, the offer were a, a PE firm in Europe. And we know that they had to do a deal. <laughs> Right. So like there was yeah. a lot of pressure. And so they kept losing, they kept losing, they had to do a deal. So they paid substantially more than what I think the company was worth. But as you said, they had to take the risk on the future performance more than anything else, tech business. So, you know, they did. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's interesting in your, in the podcast you did recently about the billion dollar exit, one of the 10 things you mentioned talked about positioning and, you know, my, my observation has been, most business owners can do a really good job describing like what their company does, um, where, where we've come in and had a lot of success is instead of describing what it does, it's like describe why it's valuable, what the, what the growth drivers are, why it's valuable, et cetera. And, you know, position the company well, 
um, positioning the company well can can lead to like really strong results. Um, so that's something that um, that's something I think is really interesting. And you know, I had an experience uh, a long time ago selling a company that made ultraviolet light bulbs, and they served all these they served all these different end user markets like automotive leak detection, geology, um, air conditioning repair, um, et cetera. And it was a declining revenue business. But they had one division that was selling um, precision ultraviolet light bulbs into life science research equipment, which was rapidly growing. And this was in the early 2000s. So, yeah, uh, early mid 2000s when the human genome was being mapped. And there was tremendous demand for their, for the particular type of equipment that they were, they were supporting. And so we were able to get a growth multiple for this business, even though it was declining in revenue, because we were able to talk about the growth opportunity within a handful of, you know, a handful of their product lines. And, you know, when we first met the business owner, you know, they weren't even thinking strategically about their business that way. They were just kind of like, we'll grow again next year. And so we'd put a lot of work in with them to sort of come up with that positioning that ultimately yielded like a really strong auction process and uh, you know, a multiple that represented a growth company multiple. So, so that's this, this I mean, positioning thing is it's easy to like talk about and it's hard to do and it's really important. I'm glad you said it. Well, and thank you for the acknowledgement on the podcast. But um, I look at it through these lens. Some in some cases, I try and simplify the world that can be overly complex, particularly because you know the business owners that we are talking about are intelligent people, but not necessarily sophisticated, right? So yeah. they don't need to have all that stuff. But I look at it like this: I say you've got you've got the financial value of the company, you know, based on 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 the different um, techniques that you described, right? You have um, the intangible assets of which when I work with a company, I look at the structure of how the company is built. I look at the leadership, I look at the processes, I look at the customer base, I look at the, the brand and the culture. And then above that, um, I look at positioning. And it's almost like a triangle and I go, okay, between those different dimensions, however you orchestrate that, and I often work with companies a few years out before they're ready to, to mm -hmm. come and work with you guys. So I might be with a company 36 months beforehand, but we're building, the, building it back from a position of value so that when, you know, we partner with, with guys like you, you know, there's still, a, there's still work to be done to go out there and do that, that piece. Right. But there's, you know, when you look at it, you go, you know what, this is pretty good. Right. Because yeah. there's a, those things are in place already. Yeah. It's, it, it, um, I think it's fascinating. And um, to me, I mean, you, to me, you touched on something that's like, so that's so important. I think most business owners, at least in our market, which is typically, you know, mid-market companies that are privately owned, and this is often the first transaction they're doing, um, they don't really do the homework to be prepared to sell to a professional strategic buyer or a professional private equity firm. And, um, you know, if they, haven't done, if they haven't done the homework, it's harder to get a good result. I mean, it's just like when you were back in school, the test is easy if you've done the homework. Um, and so... Uh, they don't, they don't know what they don't know. Right. And, yeah. and this is, and you know, I think the, the other point that you made was quite interesting because, because I think a lot of them are thinking that you grow a business by, you know, sales marketing, um, getting those people to buy again, 
Um, a lot of the businesses that I encounter haven't even got sophisticated websites or, or they don't, well, let me, let me put this way. They don't understand some of the more interesting tools that are available to them now to, yeah. to expand. Right. So, so this idea of value to them is, is something that's a little bit looking backwards as opposed to looking forwards. And if you can position the business to understand the different things that are available, right. And a lot of the private equity guys, as you've mentioned, and strategics know this, if you can introduce those things, even if they're forward strategies, they may not have even been enabled yet, right? They yeah. still they still change the story. They change the narrative. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. Very cool. Very, very cool. Okay. So let's, sorry, I cut you off to jump into that because this is what I do right on the show. Yeah. Um, so you, you spent some time, we, we were talking about investment banking. <laughs> oh, yeah. So... So I did investment banking uh, for five or six years. And then um, one of the guys that I worked for started a private equity firm um, and uh, had an opportunity to go work there, uh, which was really eye-opening and fascinating. And while uh, we were doing kind of later stage growth investing, and um, that was sort of the primary focus. And while I was at the firm, um, the firm did about 25 investments and I, I was deeply involved in um, six or seven companies. Um, so that what was, was your, what was your role there, Channing? Were you, I was an, um, as I was an associate there. Okay. Um, so were you, were you deal sourcing or were you managing the investments predominantly? Well, so it was, it was really interesting on my first day at the firm. Um, there were two partners and two associates, no desks, no computers. Like, I mean, it was a, it was, you know, at some level it was a startup, but we had almost $300 million in the bank to invest. Um, so I was, I was there for just about three years during a period where it went from four of us to, I think when I left, it was close to 20 people. Um, so, uh, not that I was in charge or anything, but it was very much a startup environment of, um, you know, learning how to do private equity investing, learning the processes, learning the procedures, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a really, um, it was a really fun environment, um, and ultimately, my wife and I made a personal decision that we wanted to move across the country to Southern California. Um, and I was kind of ready to try something different in my life at that point. Um, so we came out to California. Um, and that was in 2002. And San Diego is not a hotbed of corporate finance. I kind of tell people, if you have an investment banking and private equity background, the first place to go in San Diego is the unemployment line because the jobs are, wow. you know, or, or go, go, go surfing or something like that. Yeah. At least, at least, at least make it more fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so long story short, I started a firm with a partner uh, to do kind of lower middle market investment banking. And we were pretty successful until 2007, 2008. Um, when the, when the market turned, uh, we had started doing business appraisal projects um, there was a new type of valuation that came out called 409A, where companies were by the IRS required to do stock option valuation. So we started doing that. I think from 2008 to 2012 or 2013, we built the second largest 409A valuation practice in the country. Um, so we oh, ramped wow. up from doing our first one in 2008 to, I think we did 450 valuations in 2013, which was my last year at that firm. And was that, just so I'm clear on the, on the, on the business strategy here, was that were you then selling other products and service off the back of the valuation or was the valuation, the core, the core product? You know, we, um, the, it was a kind of a tricky time. We first got into valuation, um, as a way to stabilize our revenue. The investment banking is kind of a feast or famine 
business, you close a couple, you know, as a individual, you close a couple transactions a year. Some years you have a good year, some years you don't. Um, where valuation initially was like, hey, this is a nice supplemental cash flow stream to cover, you know, cover our overhead and keep us going through lean times. And then in 2009 and 2010, when, you know, it became very difficult to do M&A transactions, we really focused on doing, um, we really focused on doing valuation work. And the strategy, the strategy you mentioned, um, you know, get involved with these early stage venture backed companies, do their valuation work, you know, try to create a relationship so that we can do more for them in the future was sort of, you know, it was a little bit, was a little bit the strategy. Um, and then the valuation practice kind of, you know, it kind of took off. We were able to hire some very good people and expand into higher, you know, larger and more complex projects. Um, and it was a good time. So I kind of got bought out of that, that in 2013. Um, and I wanted to get back into really focusing my career on M&A advisory. Uh, so in 2014, I joined Objective. At that point, it was two of us. Um, and, uh, you know, fast forward nine or 10 years later, we have somewhere between 20 and 25 people. We have a group doing mergers and acquisitions and a group doing, you know, a group doing valuation now. Um, so it's kind of the same strategy where the, the value, you know, the valuation work is a, a stable, steady, um, nice business. And we've got a really good team. And then we've got the, the M&A business, which is, which is transactional, which, you know, has its, which has its, uh, you know, it has its ups and downs, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So, so we, our, our company sits in between, as I said beforehand. So normally there'll be evaluation yep. done. We call that the triggering. Um, certainly if someone has a business that they, you know, if that, if that valuation is lower than their expectation, right? Like they're, wow, really? Is that what it is? Um, and then we will do the value build. And then, as I said, we'll partner up the chain because I take yep. it, if you do a valuation and someone is a way off the mark, but they want to exit their business. Let's say, let's say they're 60 and they want to sell their business in the next five years. What do you do then? Do you, do you, do you assist them with any strategic consultancy at that point? Or do you go like, go away and work on these things and we'll see you in a bit. We, we, we don't, um, we don't, it's something we talk a lot about, um, but we don't necessarily have, uh, we don't necessarily do formalized consulting um, around value build. And, you know, frankly, I think, um, my observation of this from the outside looking in at a company, you know, for, for someone that has our background of, you know, hundreds of transactions and thousands of valuation projects and just working with so many different companies, it's often easy to see um, what the deficiencies are and what the things that a business needs to work on are and what the drivers of value are it's often hard to figure out how to do those things. And um, if it were easy, our clients would have already done it. And so we've tended to look at our clients and it's like, hey, you have this, you have this customer concentration issue. For example, you have a customer concentration issue. 30 or 40% of your revenue comes from one customer or 60% of your revenue comes from three customers. You know, you really need to solve that problem so that you, you know, both increase the value of your business and increase the quote unquote saleability of your company. You know, it's easy to sit and have a cop, cup of coffee and talk about solving that problem. But then when you go back to work on Monday morning and figure out how to solve it, that's not always straightforward. And so when, when we've worked with companies, we've often tried to find um, different consultants and, you know, different people that could come in and help. Um, 
And we had a real success story with this um, a couple of years ago. I, I was introduced to a company that had three partners and they had an offer from a strategic buyer that was kind of like out of the blue. And um, I sat down with one of the three partners who was kind of not necessarily the CEO, but the ringleader of the group. And, and you know, the, the offer was call it a $15 million offer. And it was like half in cash and half paid over time based on performance or something like that. Um, and I was asked, started asking this guy some questions like, do you do, do you do gap financials or, or are you on cash basis? And he's like, what's the difference? Do, do you, um, how many, like what, how many customers do you have? Well, one customer is 50% of our revenue. Do each of the three of you that are partners have a succession plan? No. You know, do you have this? No, 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 no. I mean, they, they were really not set up for success. And so we had a number of meetings with them to talk about the things they needed to work on. Over the next three years, um, they diversified their customer base. They did audited financials. Each of the three partners that was responsible for a key area in the business had a successor that they had hired um, and they had, they had grown the business and, you know, we had walked them through like a buyer due diligence process. Hey, there's seven streams of due diligence. Like you got to have all this stuff together and they had done all of it and they were ready to sell. And so we ran a sale process and sold their business for almost four times what their initial offer was in cash at closing. Um, So that's the perfect, that's the perfect scenario. That's why I wanted you to unpack that a little bit, because I think, yeah, I mean, finish your story and then I'll, we, we architect, I mean, we, I would say I had a hand in like architecting the strategy, but you know, they did the hard work. They did the hard work of diversifying their customer base, hiring the right people, re, you know, reshifting the organization and, and doing a lot of the, the building blocks, but they, I think part of it is they just didn't know they needed to focus on all of those things to have like a, a, a successful sale. Well, yeah, it's what, it's what I said beforehand about like a lot of yeah. these people are not sophisticated. They've, they've built great businesses that can drive an income for them. Yeah. Right. But when yeah. they want to, when they want to harvest that value, they, they don't know exactly what, what it looks like. And, and what I found to be true, you know, we talked a little bit about personal development as well. Yeah. There's a thing around the mindset that's required. There's also a thing around clarity, right? So clarity, like, you know, if my business mm-hmm. is worth X today, but I want it to be worth whatever it needs to be worth in the future. And I've got the gap in between that. Um, you know, you, there is a thing there about, there are certain, there's a proven model in my experience of the things that you need to work on. And you just articulated two or three of them. And what I find is once they have clarity, which is the exit strategy or whatever it is, they sometimes then need the guidance. The guidance yes. can be in the form of yeah. what I used to do, which was the operating partner, because the thing that I think private equity gets right, I'm not sure your experience with it, but they do manage, I think, the spreadsheet work with the operating work, certainly the good ones. So, you know, when mm-hmm. I was put in to sit on the board of investments um, from my background of being a CEO and stuff like that, you know, I would, I would almost be like a guide or a coach to the management team. Right. And that works quite well. But a lot of the businesses that I go into don't even have that. They've got no advisory. They've got no board. And I was going to ask you this question because it comes up all the time. When you sell a company, particularly to private equity, when the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to have some governance around them. If that business has already proven to operate with a level of governance, 
what does that do to the valuation? Does that, is that a positive thing? Does it de-risk or does it not matter? It's a, it's a positive. And, and I think, um, I think it's a positive. And, you know, when you, when you look at some of the key value, the, some of the key value drivers in a business, um, pre predictability is, is a big one. And so a, a private, typical private company operating without a governance structure doesn't often pay a lot of, a lot of attention to putting, you know, one year, three year, five year business plans together. And, and they don't, they're not held accountable on a monthly or quarterly basis to hit their budget or hit their business plan. And so they're, they, that they're not then sort of forced to figure out how to, how to build predictability into their business because no one's holding them accountable. You know, we have a lot of clients who are like, look, I have no debt. I've got a good business. Like it's up next month. It's down next month. I do 30 million this year. I do 40 million this year. I still made money. Like who cares? Um, where, but this, what I've learned is this, this um, governance around being forced to present a budget and then hit the budget or talk about why you're off the budget forces executives and business owners to understand what the drivers of their business are and start managing, start identifying them and start managing them. And so if you can build more predictability into the business, it's worth more. When you when you sit down, when you at the, at the end of the day, the the more risk a buyer sees, the less value they'll pay. Um, so the the more you can sit there and say, look, I know when I do this today, I get this outcome in the future. I've done that. I have a stable path for the last five years, the last three years, whatever it is. And so you can count on this level of revenue and this level of profit when you own my business because it's predictable and I've got all the systems worked out, et cetera. That's worth much more than, I don't know, sometimes I do 40 million and sometimes I do 30 and, you know, whatever, but I make money every year. Like, uh, so that, that just that governance makes... Um, this is such an important conversation. That makes it's, such a big difference. This is such an important thing for people to hear, right? Because, and 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 I want to kind of get a little bit more practical as as we sort of go into the last sort of ten to fifteen minutes here. But when we look at a business from let let's say the drivers of value, right? And I know it's going to be different in different industries and all that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, what do you see as the key drivers? Some of them I I appreciate we have also covered. You, you know, I have a um, I actually have a checklist that I go through that I keep on my. Oh, let's do for, let's do that. For driver. Um, <laughs> I like people. I, to, a, I like people to leave here, like going. Oh, I've got something I can do. Well, if I, if they're considering exiting their business in the future, they've got something they can work towards. So let's go through how an investment banker have, like yourself does. Yeah, this. Have, let's go. We have a we have two two kind of checklists we work with. One I would say is the value drivers. You know, hey, what 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 makes this company valuable, um, and what could you do to make it more valuable? That's one kind of checklist. And then the second one is what are the saleability factors? Um, what, what it's almost like we company... rehearsed this, isn't it? Chance? It's like we, you know, we rehearsed, we didn't, by yeah. the way, this is good like, that you've got them on your desk. Yeah. So what, <laughs> what makes this company not saleable? Um, like you can't transfer and you, you've used the term transferability. You, you, in order to sell your business, you have to be able to transfer, transfer the value to a new owner. So if there are certain risk factors, a new owner is not going to get comfortable with the risk factors. And so I have these two um, kind of checklists I work with on the, on the value driver side. 
one of them is understanding where you where you are in your industry and your market cycle. Often um, industries go through periods of consolidation where there's a lot of growth and acquisition activity, and then they go through periods of not a lot of growth and not a lot of acquisition activity. And so understanding where your business is on that cycle um, is really important. Um, and it's the it, best you, place to get that information talking to people like yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think, re, you know, re reading, reading the trade journals, staying up on the public companies in your space, staying up on the transactions that take place, you know, investment, you have a nice company, investment bankers will do a lot of free work for you if you, if you meet with them to, you know, create a relationship. And so that can be really helpful. And, you know, I, I, um, during my first stint in investment banking in the late nineties, we sold a commercial printing business. At that time, there were eight buyers doing a consolidation. So you could make eight phone calls and get like eight really good offers for a commercial printing business. Um, 20 years later, I, I, we got hired to sell a commercial printing business that arguably had a better business. Um, there were no buyers. All of those eight companies had made all of their acquisitions and built big businesses. And they, they were not focused on acquisitions, they were focused on operations. And so arguably a better company with better metrics, better technology, better customers, um, you know, the, the offers we got were half what they were from multiple standpoint 20 wow. years earlier. So they, they, um, were in, they, they were in the kind of consolidation phase of what they'd done as opposed yeah. to the growth phase or the build. So, so that's one that's like not an internal focus thing, but an external focus thing to just sort of understand what's going on in your market and just okay. Well, let's, let's go through that... how many have you got, by the way, let's go through them. Okay. So the next one is, um, manage management team. Um, like having a strong, having a strong management team so that, um, the, the business is predictable and scalable, really a significant value driver. And how do um, you, how do you determine that if you're coming in and doing due diligence, is it, is it looking at their track records or is it an interview process? What, what do you normally I, see? I mean, I like often it's like, you can ask the owner, you know, what, what's your executive team look like? And when they're like, well, I don't really have people, you know, or, uh, I have one person uh, <laughs> yeah, it's or me. something like it's that. Me. I'm the sales guy. I'm the marketing guy. I'm the ops yeah. guy. I do the supply chain stuff. I do the banking. In fact, I run the, I run the yeah. money down to the local bank. And if someone <laughs> can pull out an organization chart and they're like, Hey, I've got marketing sales, operations, finance, admin, I've got a great person in each. This is a well-oiled machine. Um, that's worth more than I'm um, chef cook and bottle washer. Boom. Okay. I, I was having a conversation with a client today saying yeah. this exact thing because their org chart was all over the place. And I said, listen, seriously, yeah. just, you know, don't yeah. have five marketing directors. <laughs> yeah. The, the next one is intellectual property. Um, businesses that, that have something proprietary that they're doing where they can create a sort of a, a moat or a barrier to entry or a sustainable competitive advantage are, are worth more. So we spend a lot of time understanding that. What, what constitutes intellectual property? What are the different types that you see? I mean, you know, tech's I, an obvious uh, one. Yeah, I mean, there's some, there's some obvious ones, patents, software, um, et cetera. You know, we're, we're working with a, a marketing agency business right now that has spent millions and millions developing some internal resources that they use to be more efficient. Um, and their margins are higher than their competitors. 
Um, so they have, they have a, uh, they have a competitive advantage, um, because they've, they've put the processes and internal technology and systems in place to do that. Um, the next value driver, um, is desired business metrics. Um, and then this is, this is industry, this is industry specific, uh, but, you know, revenue and EBITDA are obviously important. You don't need to listen to this podcast to figure out that, um, but, well, actually, there there are some businesses out there that don't really know what EBITDA is. In other words, they just they're just yeah. chasing revenue, and they've got valuations over a billion. Exactly. That's <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other podcast, right? And that's, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> and one of the things that one of the things that we try to do, um, and there's a couple of different industry sectors we work in, but we try to look at some of the other considerations. Um, you know, what are the growth rates? What are the margins? What are the underlying unit economics that drive value? And so. Um, our firm worked with a like an e-commerce company, and you know there's a lot of metrics in e-commerce around cost of customer acquisition, return on ad spend, lifetime value of customer, um, it, repeat business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can benchmark those against um, competition. And you know when management starts focusing on improving their performance in those, the business performs and it provides really good visibility into the business. Um, so the the business metrics are important. Just on that um, as well, what 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 role do you think in the business is needed? Remember, a lot of these businesses are not sophisticated, so they may not have fully built out finance functions, for example, or analysts. But to go deep into the econometrics, what what do you normally see in businesses that have a really good um, handle on those things? We um, we wind up doing a lot of that work with our clients because they've underinvested in their finance accounting and reporting systems historically. Um, You're putting uh, like fractional people in to be able to help build those, those um, reports and systems. Yeah. We'll often, often we'll kind of introduce some fractional people. Um, we also have some um, strong analytical people on our team where we might download transaction level data out of a Shopify or some other system and slice and dice it to figure out some of those metrics. Um, and it's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work, but um, you know, another one is really interesting. Like years ago, the security alarm business went through consolidation and the, the consolidators didn't care if the, if the companies they were buying made money or not, because they were going to migrate the entire monitoring system onto a new platform. So the consolidator, the only things the consolidator consolidators cared about was um, the revenue and the retention rate. So if you own, if you own two, if you, if you owned a security alarm business, the, the faster you were growing and the better you were retaining your clients actually mattered more than whether you made money or not. And so you could, you could, and this is the point you made earlier is a lot of people just focus on revenue or community size or this or that. Those can be value drivers. Uh, you just kind of have to pay attention to what's driving value in your sector for your buyers, but figuring those out is really important. Well, sometimes you can look at the individual assets, can't you? I mean, what's the percentage of asset versus stock sales that you get involved in? Yeah, um, it's it's mixed. It's probably 50-50. Um, and then the other, the other ones are, um, the other value drivers are predictability of the business. I've talked about that already, but the more a business has, you know, recurring revenue, consistent delivery, 
a standardized sale process with clear client acquisition metrics. So it's like, hey, if I'm doing this today, I know what my revenue is going to be over the next 12 months. Um, or that makes a huge difference in valuation. Um, differentiation from competition bar and barriers to entry are also um, value drivers we look at. And so what, what I think is interesting when I walk people through this list is you know, the revenue in EBITDA is, you know, clearly the financial performance is clearly a significant value driver, but there are so many intangible things that can make a massive difference. And so getting owners to start focusing on that, you know, five years, et cetera, in advance of a sale and really figuring those things out makes the makes it so much easier to get a premium valuation when you sell your yeah, company. Yeah, honestly, we could geek out about this for ages because I, I was saying to someone today, and this is, they, they didn't agree with me, but I said about 30 to 40% of the transfer value is going to come off the finances and the rest is going to come off the intangibles of which, you know, you went through all the ones that I look at in a bit more detail, actually. I look at it in four different lenses. But, um, but once they realize that they can work on each of those things, they just become priorities, right, that you can work on on a sort of a 90-day cadence. Yeah. And if you have enough runway, like as I said, for me, it's usually 36 months, you can build value as well as optimize the finances. And you're going to get, you're going to get the benefit of, as you said, um, the, 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 the performance of the business today, even if you choose not to sell it, right, you're going to get a better quality business by going through those, yeah. those things with, with a bit of discipline. Exactly. And it, it comes, it circles back to the governance stuff that we talked about earlier. The, the more a management team has been forced to identify focus on and manage to the value drivers, the better they are at it. And a lot of these sort of independent, non-institutionally owned companies haven't sort of forced that discipline on themselves and don't take the time to think it through. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's a very, and I, I think you probably have more expertise than this than I do, but it's a significant way that private equity firms add value. They just get management to focus on, um, they just get management to focus a little bit more on the value drivers. Oh, I mean, the reason I, we talked about this before pressing record, the reason that I left private equity and my mission now is to work with, you know, effectively smaller and medium sized business owners, as opposed to the institutions is because I saw a massive gap that was happening up the chain. I mean, the amount of money yeah. we were making in private equity by doing these value enhancement um, strategies versus what the entrepreneurs who went through all the risk to build these businesses from scratch. I mean, you know the numbers, I know the numbers, yeah. let's not talk about the numbers, but it just seemed like there was a, um, a disproportionate level of value being made up the chain. And I, I thought the dispersion of that needed to be balanced. That's why, yeah. I, that's why I, I changed what I did four years ago. And that billion dollar exit that I talked about, some of those principles, even though it was a big number and a big exit, the same principles can be applied to a business that's doing seven or eight figures, right? You know, they're not, it's not rocket science. Exactly. You know, and then and then the other um, the other element of it is, and I talked about this before, is eliminate risks. Um, you really have yeah, to make sure. summarize those. I don't want to finish the episode. I know we're getting close to time, but I don't want to finish the episode without talking about the risk. And I do have a question. Do you do you have um, can people get access to these things? Do you have these downloadable on your website or anything, or is this kind of in your in your? It's, <laughs> I, I haven't really formalized it yet, but you know, we probably should. You probably should um, because I'm going to get people come and ask me. I'll, I'll, they can say I'll chatting was awesome. I'll, I'll put an article together. I'll put an article together. Do something like that. And if anyone comes website. through to me, then I can obviously send yeah. them your way as well. But uh, let's go uh, through the risk factors as well. Yeah. So I, at, at the end of the day, I think it's exactly what we've talked about. It's you really need to make sure the business is transferable. 
to a new buyer. So, you know, customer or vendor concentration. You know, I had a I had a deal last year that was reliant on one vendor, and that vendor had the in their contract had the right to approve a change in ownership. And so the vendor showed up and wanted to change their terms and it blew up the deal. So our our client who had built a really nice business never really paid attention to this vendor relationship, couldn't sell his company. Um, and, you know, like took two years for him to go and renegotiate this contract and it was a mess and it finally got sold. But um, then uh, employment practices, a, lo a lot of smaller companies can get away with things that big companies won't put up with. Um, litigation and legal issues. Um, having a management team that won't show well to the buyer, the buyer is going to think the business is dependent on the owner or one key person. No one's going to write you a fat check um, unless you have other people that can run the run and transition the business. Um, having audited, having audited, or at a minimum, like really well put together gap financial statements. If the accounting is sloppy, buyer can't trust the numbers. The a CFO of a public, if a public company is buying you or a private equity firm is buying you and they're going to use bank debt and you don't have numbers that can be trusted, you can't sell the company. Um, having perfect IP ownership and perfect IP practices. If, if, if you don't have, if you're sloppy with your IP ownership, can't sell the company. Um, sloppy processes, reliance on key individuals, um, IT security. You know, 25 years ago when I started on this, like IT security was It wasn't, seems like a longer list than the value drivers. <laughs> yeah. You know, IT security wasn't on the list, wasn't on the list, but um, th uh, there's a lot of like consumer data, privacy, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A big company will not buy your company if you're sloppy with that stuff because it could poison the well for them well, it's, in their it, whole business. It's the word you said before, predictability, but the other word we'll add, and it's actually one of my favorite words is precision. Yeah. Right? You know, if someone comes in and there is a precise build, right? You know, because I, I often do a process of shadow due diligence, like, you know, do the due diligence before the exit, right? And if, if, if yeah. you can go through there and kind of find all the the skeletons in the closet and and repair them. I mean, how good does it look when someone comes to you and the business is taken out? I mean, it must be easy to sell firstly, A, you're gonna sell it, but B, you're yeah. gonna get the highest value because all of the risks and the upside are clearly understood and documented. Yeah. And then um, the last two, uh, the last two I have are uh, being compliant with industry regulations and standards. Um, a lot of small companies can get away with skirting the regulations or sort of cutting some corners or whatever, you know, a big company is not going to buy you um, if you have sloppy practices. And that's like having area. like standards and um, effectively yeah. any, any kind of licenses for practice, that sort of stuff. Yep. Cause if, if the regulatory agency, like, you know, the day after a, a big company buyer writes you a check and the regulatory agency shows up the day after closing to audit your practices and finds deficiencies, the big company, may or may not be able to continue to run your business. Yeah, you're gonna have warrants against that as well as the owner. So yeah. that, you know, if you sold the yeah. business for like 50 million and then suddenly like that happens, you might lose a big chunk of that. Yeah, exactly. That and then um, the other the other one that I think is really important um, is is building a good advisory team. You know, have, having, having really good tax 
tax and accounting advice, having really good legal legal advice, having really good, you know, all the personal planning and trusts and stuff like that. And the more you have that dialed in, the fewer issues seem to come up in the actual like doing of the transaction and the negotiation. So that's also we say like, um, in, in you know, I'm part of the Exit Planning Institute, right? And one of the things we say is that the number one reason a deal falls through, right? Certainly for the levels we're talking about, certainly for people who are kind of in that mm -hmm. sort of, let's say, retirement is seller cold feet. And the seller cold feet is two things, actually. It's not having something to go and do next. Like, you know, I, after I've sold yeah. my business, my life, this is my identity, right? We talked about personal development. And the other part of that is I just don't have my house in order. I don't have my yeah. estate in order. You know, one of the things that we, one of the things we spend some time with um, clients um, and what I've learned is like, you know, if a business is going to sell for 25 or $30 million, that often, that sounds like a lot of money, but after you pay off debt, pay some transaction fees, pay taxes, split with a couple partners, um, each individual is not getting obvious amounts of money to retire. So having a well thought out understanding of your financial needs and your financial plan, so then when it does come to time to sign on the dotted line, you know, you're going to be taken care of financially is also a really important one that a lot of people don't think through. Yeah. Because a lot of like, you know, financial advice slash wealth management, um, particularly yeah. on, you know, you said transactions sounds like a lot of money, but sometimes these people just haven't had that around them. So I, I talk about um, the internal and the external team, the internal team, making sure you have got that great leadership team, management team, yeah. um, right people, right seats, well-documented structures around that. And then having a team of advisors around you, which, as you said, you covered most of it. You've got the tax, you've got the legal. Yeah. Um, I, I did the operating partner piece a lot, as we, we've spoken about. But those sort of things, when you start to do that, it makes the whole thing a lot easier. And the other thing I say is, this is the biggest financial transaction that most business owners are ever going to experience in their life if they get it right. It can also yeah. be the biggest thing that's going to, you know, probably cause them a huge amount of distress if they get it wrong. So you kind of want to, yeah. you want to think about the fact that, you know, if you have to invest to get that outcome, I, I can't, I can't imagine there's ever going to be any equation that makes that look like a stupid thing to do. Exactly. Yeah. Well, listen, we are at time. Uh, that was awesome, Channing. Honestly, yeah, you're going to have to write me. I really enjoyed this. You're going to have to write a paper on all the things that we spoke about. People will yeah. reach out to me and ask about those things. But um, yeah, good to good to have a conversation with someone who has a very similar philosophy to everything. So thank you for coming on the show. Just remember the test is easy if you do the homework. I like that. I like yeah. that a lot. Well, listen, thank you very much, Channing. Uh, it's been yeah. great having you on here. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing all of your wisdom today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything you heard in today's show, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.